Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. How far do you have to go before you are too far gone? How many times do you have to mess up before God quits on you? How many sins does it take to put yourself out of earshot of God's help? Well, this lesson is going to give us an answer to that question, and the answer is that we are never too far gone. No one comes to the point where they cry out to God in true repentance and humility and are turned away. On this lesson, uh, we see the most wicked king in all of Israel and all of Judah repent, and we see God show him mercy. Joining me once again today is Matt Barfield. Hello there. And Andy Montgomery. Hey. And we are all back from Thanksgiving and feeling a little bit sluggish. Oh, yeah. Trying to work off all that turkey, and so... Um, we've got our coffee with us, though, we, so we're good. <laughs> we've got our coffee. So we are working through uh, the life of Manasseh, and then we're also going to include Ammon just kind of as a, as a tack-on because, frankly, Kings and Chronicles include Ammon just kind of as a tack-on. Very, uh, very short, and yet I think that there's some interesting contrast here when we compare Manasseh and his reign and Ammon and his reign, and both of these uh, kind of go together. And so we're going to... Uh, talk, I'm just going to get us started as we look at the life of Manasseh. And Manasseh is known in scripture as the most wicked king. Uh, He is a king in Judah, and he's probably um, more wicked even than Ahab. You know, if you were to ask most people, who's the most wicked king in the book of Kings and Chronicles, most people are probably going to say, oh, well, that would be Ahab. Uh, But Manasseh actually hasn't beat and so uh, there's a number of things that, um, that he does, and a good portion of the lesson, at least when I went through it, is, is we just talk through all of the things that he does. And one of the commentaries that I was reading made the point that this is kind of like a, um, a best hits list of the sins of the kings of Judah yeah. and Israel. Or what not to do. Yeah, and he just ticks all of the boxes. And I don't know that there's any other king that they list all of these things out mm-hmm. together uh, for one, so that you can look through there uh, and just kind of see that there's a number of them in, in the lesson that we're looking at. Manasseh rebuilds the high places. Um, he uh, establishes Baal worship. He corrupts the temple like his uh, grandfather Ahaz had. He burns his own son. Uh, he engages in sorcery like Saul had. And so you just, you keep going through this list and you're like, man, this is some some really, really bad stuff. So let's just kind of pause on each of those uh, or on a few of those at least and, and think through some of them. So, and Ben, could I say one thing before we dive yeah, into them real go quick? For it. I know that one of the things that I've mentioned a few times throughout, it's been a few weeks since we have, but according to, especially when you're reading through the King's accounts, is pretty important. And uh, at the beginning of Manasseh's reign, it talked about how he, was, he did everything, uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations. And usually when we use that term abomination, it's a pretty strong one. So it's a, that's a pretty big condemnation of his, of his reign right before he starts that, according to the abominations of the nations. And so those are two concepts we've talked about that according to is, is pretty important in the King's accounts to, ex, to explain what people's actions were. They either went according to God's law or according to what God said, or they did according to former kings. In this case, um, it's not too often that in the King's accounts that we've seen something according to the abominations and then of the nations, which is usually a way of speaking of just complete worldliness in the Old Testament context. So I just find that to be an interesting introduction before we even dive down into the depths of these, that these are going to be some really wicked concepts we're going to be studying. Yeah, and you know, that's interesting because at the end of this uh, list of, of wicked things that he did in verse 9 of Second Kings 21, we read... Um, 
uh, but they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. You know, these are the nations where God warns the people as they're coming in, the land is vomiting these people out. Like, I, they, they are so wicked and so detestable that I'm going to use you to wipe them out. Don't follow their example. And now we find that in Judah, in the south, things are actually worse than they were before uh, Judah came into the land. It, it's, it's pretty hard to wrap our minds around it, and I think a lot of times we... We just kind of assume this is like hyperbole and move along. Ezekiel makes this point as well in regard to uh, Israel and Judah, where he tells this, I forget what chapter it is, but he tells this parable basically of these two sisters, the older sister and the younger sister, referring to Israel and Judah, and that God punishes the older sister. Aholabah. Yeah, Aholabah and Ola or whatever. (laughs) It's very interesting names. And then he says that Judah actually looks at the sins of the northern kingdom and does worse. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is really that that point where you look at it, and this is probably the low point in Judah. I mean, this is, things are, it's hard to really put into words how bad things are. And it's hard, in some ways, honestly, it's hard to, to take seriously this type of language, to think that God's people are actually behaving worse than the Canaanites that God caused them to drive mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how today there's a, there's a push towards, in popular media, um, you see images of a lot of, return to historical ideas, ancient ancient civilizations, but whenever they depict them, they always show the worst possible thing from them. And it's almost like we're studying the worst of the worst that have come before us, and that's becoming entertainment for us. And if, if we're imbibing that, that's becoming normative to us. It's really sad to think of the different uh, kings that came in the West before and the things they did, um, but to think that we're, we're resurrecting some of those things and, mm-hmm. and revisiting it now in our modern culture without a lot of the structures that were in place culturally in the past to keep the general population from going into evil. Um, it's really, it's really a bad thing to go back and try and say, well, what, what else was out there? How could we, you know, those, you, you go back to historical all of a sudden, I mean, I don't want to get too controversial here, but you look back at these historical things from world war two and all the heroes are homosexual. And it's like, was that really what world war two was like? Is that really, or are they picking these things out and saying, that's what we should think about when we think back to that time. That's what we should think about when we think back to, you know, the Kings of England or the Kings of Germany or the Kings of, you know, whatever. I mean, that's revisionist history. It's just, it's just, it, yeah. It's like, can we find something that's my, that might even be true and look back and say, well, look, there was a homosexual person that was not treated well back in world war two. And I'm sure that happened. Of course it, it I'm sadly, it probably happened all the time, but the fact is, is that that's still not normative and that's still not right. And we still need to be able to say, here's what the Bible says about that topic, right? And that's, that's up, uh, upon us. And I think sometimes we look back and we're being told history, you know, this is, look back to all those other things, look back to all those people. And they were like that too. And I, I guess I see sort of a parallel here. They're looking around his other stuff and saying, you know, mm. and that's not going to end up with us being as good as they were. It's going to end up with us being worse than they were. Yeah, that they're... Israel's and Judah here are dipping back into what the you know what the Canaanites were like before, and trying to pull that forward to the to the present. Yeah, and it ends up way worse. Yeah, huh? I think too. It's it it kind of and this just came to me. It reminds me of what Paul says in First Corinthians when he says, "There's fornication among you, and such fornication as is not even named among the Gentiles." Yeah, you know, and it's it's kind of a sad, sobering reality. But sometimes God's people can actually act worse than the world. Sure. Um, and there, you know, that would be probably a topic worth exploring on its own. But just why 
why is that? What are the, what are, how does that even work? Um, but you know, that our Christian faith does not in and of itself grant us immunity from the wickedness of the world. And sometimes, I don't know, when we trust in that, it, it can, it can go awry. Um, well, it's hard to see what you're standing on. And the fact is we got a lot of victories. Israel, had, Judah had a lot of victories. Yeah. They still had the temple and Manasseh brings an idol into it. But, yeah. but I mean, you, it's hard to see what you're standing on. And so you, you've got this, all these blessings and benefits. And frankly, um, you know, as far as I could tell my travels and my readings, we've, we've been really blessed here. We've been really successful as Christians in America. A lot of, a lot of Bible truth is a major part of our culture and a major part of our history. And that's amazing. That's that's not a that's a blessing. It's a good thing. But it's sometimes hard to see it, and so you end up taking it for granted, and then you end up you know not able to explain it to yourself and to your children and to the next generation, and so it slips and it falls, and you get you know far worse than you started because you haven't built up minor defenses. When I go around the world, and I see other ch- suffering churches like in the Middle East where we lived. Mm. They have to really be careful to teach their children who are not Muslim. Here's the difference between a Christian and a Muslim. They do it all the time, every day. It's constantly being reiterated. But for us, you know, we are so used to being part of this normal Christian big community that we don't tell our kids the same kind of aggressive type things to help them learn what makes them different, learn what makes them unique. Um, and that's something that, that Israel uh, forgot and then or went away from, and then embraced all these things were the antithesis of what they were supposed to be. Yeah, there's a book that I read um, portions of, <laughs> um, but it, it was called All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, and he made the point that um, the subtle, I'm trying to think how exactly he, he worded a lot of this, but he talked about the fact that there's the subtle danger of pop culture is in some ways a more serious threat than persecution. And he said, now that may seem a little bit extreme. Like, okay, you're telling me that, you know, watching a TV show is more dangerous than facing a lion. And his point was that he makes, and I think it's a valid point. He says, when you're facing the lion, you know, that's a threat. Like it's very clear. Like persecution is obvious. It's, it's, you know, right in front of you, but the little by little subtle, uh, compromises that we make with the world are much harder, uh, to keep, to keep vigilant over and to be prepared for and to be ready for well you can just go and look at pop culture from different eras and go wow we've really changed in our terms of what a hero is what right right or wrong is what that struggle looks like and you can just look today the rise of the anti-hero which is a major thing in today's culture yeah having these really 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 flawed guys who end up doing something okay yeah uh (laughs) you know and and that's such a far cry from what it used to be where the hero was this stalwart shining knight in armor who comes in and, and stands against the darkness and wins. Um, and you know, we have, we're playing in our storylines with a lot of other things and we have to, you know, we have to be vigilant as to what light is and what darkness is and to be able to identify that for ourselves and say, is this thing my enemy or is this thing my friend? Is this thing my ally or is this thing against me? And, and then be able to explain that to others. And it doesn't make you very popular at parties, but, but you do need to be able to do that because all this content's coming in and uh, you might be maybe a little more quiet than I am and how I deal with it, but you do need to do that. We do need to have that mental 
a fire alarm in our head. I smell smoke. Something's not right here. And I need to pay, pay attention and, and, and think differently about this. So, so that, in, I was saying true form here. We, we started with the abominations of the nations and who knows where we are now. Yeah. Well, we're all Manasseh. So be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> no, I think Andy's right. Just kind of bringing this back. Where, how did we get here? And I think the point was, if, if we're not careful as Christians, we can end up acting more perverse than the world around us. Nobody you know, ever gets off topic of Sunday school roundtable. No, 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 no. That doesn't ABF happen. Round table. Um, yeah, and sure. then you have, ten, you have uh, three minutes left to finish off <laughs> yeah. seven-eighths of the lesson. All right, let me just Speaking go ahead and give you the rest of these the blanks, <laughs> and you can do this for your devotions over the next week. <laughs> this is what not to do for That never happens. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about some of these specifically. So Manasseh rebuilds the high places. Um, why do the high places keep coming back? What do you think their appeal is? And what's, what is so wrong about them if, if in many of these the Lord is being worshipped? It's such an impressive thing. I mean, I just wish you all could go to a high yeah, place. Yeah, that's see right. It. We did talk about this in previous. Yeah, I mentioned you saying the, that. The high places of sacrifice in Petra, southern Jordan, are, which would have been Edom uh, from Bible times, are un, unbelievable. They're almost indescribable. It's like they, it's like they come out of nowhere. You're walking through this this rose colored mass of rocks, and you turn a corner, all of a sudden this thing's in front of you, and it's it was a mountaintop that was shaved down to leave a stone altar or an obelisk right there in the middle. It's unreal, and you stand up there, and it's dizzying all around you. It's hard to get your perspective. It's just such an incredible experience, um, even if you're not worshiping. Just just to walk it and see the nature is unreal. And, and then you t- put on that all the other trappings of a religious experience and a lot of people getting into it, and it's such an appealing thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's got more dr- natural draw than an NFL game. Wow. Um, I, I, I almost think of the concept with deception and Satan, how he disguises himself as an angel of light. And uh, sometimes there's sure. things like that that just attract our attention. Like people, you know, a lot of people our age, Ben, are, have a wanderlust where they just want to go and see all yeah. these spots all over the world and... And by being in some of these glorified places, they just I mean feel your like age, <laughs> my age too. Yeah, I know, but like there's a there's a stereotype. But we right mean now. like young people, Matt, like not you. Okay, uh, yeah, Matt, right, just right. just you all know, right, just right. listen for now. All right, I'm, just kidding. I'm just go kidding. Ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. But there's a people there's with two year old kids, not higher places, and wow. when you when you see these glorious places, it's almost. I mean, it, it should point us to the fact that there is a God. Yeah, absolutely. But for some, it just points themselves to they, they don't quite take it that way. It's just a, a higher thing yeah. that they feel somewhat connected to. And so, yeah, these high places, these, these glorified, cool looking, um, almost a little bit of high culture when they're not used to getting high culture. Like it just, it's, it's really attractive in that but sense. But God, God specifically had them build the temple a certain way. Right. He didn't say, just go up to a mountain and just worship up there because that's not what he wanted. It, it was very specific. He wanted them to understand him in a certain context and to see him interact with them in a certain context. As well, pastoral I, staff, we, uh, a few, I don't, Ben, I don't even know if you were here that summer. Um, it was before you and I were on staff, but the, the new Mormon temple was built up in Carmel. Mm. And, uh, and so pastor took all of us pastoral staff out. And I think I was an intern to go see, uh, this this Mormon temple they they allow the infidels to come through before they purify it. Oh dear! So you go into every room and it's just like emphasis is light everywhere you go. And so like it's mm. and then they made a giant appeals to families about how you'll be able to spend eternity with your with your family. You know, and it's like the you just walk through and you're like, man, if I wasn't a Christian, this is this is something you'd buy. Very compelling. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think too uh, when we think about these. When I think about high places, because again, oftentimes it is the Lord that's worshiped there. And so it can be tough for us to say, well, like, you know, why does it matter? Why can't they just 
worship there. And the problem is there's not necessarily a priest there. It's just kind of yeah. you do what you want. There's no oversight. And in Scripture, there's supposed to be the oversight of the priests and the Levites who know the law and make sure that the law is being followed. See, I think that's the key because in all of God's dealing with man, God puts man and woman in this perfect, beautiful garden, and then he speaks to them. And the temptation is, look at the garden, don't listen to what I said. So it's always back to the word of God. God communicates to us by via language. That's what he does. He's done it from the Garden of Eden. He does it today. And so when we go back to these other these other forms that feel really impressive, I mean, that's supposed to be impressive. That's, that's, that is part of creation. But we're supposed to prefer what he says. And that's what the temple, the temple was a demonstration of. God said, build it like this. I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to tell you what I want. And that specific revelation is what's supposed to drive us. We're supposed to be word people, people that listen to the word of God and apply it to our lives. And that makes sense of nature. That makes sense of all the other things, but it's word first. Yeah. So as we, um, as we keep moving on with this, we've talked about the high places some. Uh, we've talked, we talked a little bit about the corrupting of the temple. Um, did we talk about that with Ahaz? Um, sure, when he went in and wasn't yeah, supposed to. Yes. Yeah, and he and you know why him and not Hezekiah. So we see the same kind of thing. Manasseh just takes it to a whole new level, though. I mean, he's setting up altars for foreign gods. He's putting actual and idols. doesn't get stricken with doesn't get struck with leprosy. leprosy. And you think of, about right. Nadab and Abihu, you know, in Leviticus yep. uh, chapter ten, where we have two sons of Aaron who mess up the formula for incense and are and are gone, blown like, up. That's it for them, <laughs> right? And then you have this guy who's putting an idol in the temple. And it, it's just, it's hard to even fathom that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it seems to me, as I've tried to work through that, I don't know if anybody else wrestles with this, but how, how do you have Ananias and Sapphira giving money, saying it's not what it was, and they're dead? We've got people with names on buildings and all across the college campuses and stuff that have done far worse. I'm not trying to impugn anybody. I'm just saying we, we are much less careful than, than they were, and they were punished you know, with humanly speaking, the ultimate punishment. So it's sort of like, how does, how does that happen? How do you, how are we not all dead for all the things we've all done? I'll put myself there. I can blame anybody else. Um, and I think, I think the only way I've been able to figure that out is God at the beginning of a thing shows something specific. Same with Aiken, right? Things were done. Aiken's far worse after Aiken and they didn't get stoned for it. So it's, it's a matter of in the beginning, God showing, this is what this actually is. Now, what are you going to do in response to that? And so I think, I think there's something here where Manasseh is at the end of a thing, and so there's a different kind of response. Same with Ananias and Sapphira. They're at the beginning of a thing. What you see in Revelation uh, 2 and 3, some of those people were doing stuff far worse. You know, God looks at people in the church and says, you, I'm going to put you in a bed with the whoredoms and all this. I mean, it's terrible what he's describing. Yeah. Uh, that's way worse than Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira are dead, and God's telling those people, you got a chance to repent. So hey, watch out. Yeah. Exactly right. So I think there's something about the beginning of a thing versus the middle versus the end and how God responds. That's the only way I've been able to sort that, but maybe well, something else to say on that. I guess a, another angle on it is um, God has an individual purpose and in his sovereignty for every life. Sure. And so for some of those, through the lesson of Nadab and Abihu, we learn a lesson. Through Ananias and Sapphira, with their death, we learn a lesson. But God had a purpose for the life of Manasseh, and I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. When we see his wickedness and then we see his repentance at the end, um, I, I think of Second Peter three nine that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now in the New Testament context, that's obviously the, his his return. Mm-hmm. He promised that he will return. He's not slow to fulfill that promise, as right. some men count slowness, but 
He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, obviously, God in his sovereignty knew that Manasseh was going to repent at the end of his life. And so, he sees all of this wickedness, some of the worst things that we can see in mankind, and yet even the worst of sinners can repent. And I I think part of the reason why we see he gets away with some of this stuff is that God knows the end of the story. And he knows that he's going to repent, and we're going to learn a lesson from it today, and and it's intended for us to learn that lesson from Manasseh's life. Well, and I forget, I think earlier, Matt, you might have made this point, um, or maybe it was in the lesson itself, but, you know, Christ makes a statement, um, except ye repent, ye likewise shall perish. Like, what happened with Achan, what happened with Nadab and Abihu, that's what we all deserve. Hmm. And the fact that Manasseh doesn't get it and that um, you know the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 don't get it immediately uh, is God's mercy. And I think that word immediately is important because, again, except ye repent, yeah. th- this is coming for you. What happened to Nadab and Abihu was coming from Manasseh if he didn't repent. Yeah, what true. happened to Ananias and Sapphira is coming for you know, people who've given fraudulently and don't repent. Like, you know, God, I think mm. I think what you said is, is right too. God is warning up front, like, this is the reality. Like, this is the real situation. This is what it is. This is what it is, and this is what the the, the cost is going to be. And then as it goes, he, he shows mercy and he's patient, but he warns us. There was a, a Puritan who was writing on Romans 2, which says, you know, uh, basically, uh, knoweth not that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but beware lest you, basically, lest you treasure up uh, wrath for the last day. And I forget all of what he said, but he basically he said, suck not poison from the flower of God's sweet mercy. Mm. Um, mm. You know, mercy is not for those who sin and fear not, but for those who fear and sin not. And he, he ended the quote by saying, mercy abused turns to fury. Mm. And the idea that, yes, God shows mercy, but that doesn't mean that, well, you're not going to get what's coming to you. That means you're given an opportunity to to jump out of the way of what's coming to you through repentance. Right. Um, and if you don't, it's coming, and it's going to be far worse than if you weren't shown that mercy. Mm. Wow. Um, so It's a good warning. Yeah. Uh, sobering truths, for sure. And again, like you, like you said, we, we may look at this and be like, oh, well, you know, who really cares? God doesn't, you know, God didn't hit Manasseh with it, and it's, you, you know, the reminder is, be careful that you don't judge God's ultimate justice by what you see on this earth because there is a judgment that's coming and it will be uh, final and it will be fair. Mm. Um, and so uh, we see uh, several other sins, and I, I listed those off, and, and we'll keep moving just for time's sake. We've looked at a couple of them. Uh, Manasseh is chastened by the Lord. He, he sends prophets to warn him, and it would seem that at least immediately he kind of blows them off and ignores them. And uh, then in Second Chronicles, we read about this interesting story. Assyria comes and leads Manasseh, uh, captures him, and, and leads him back to Babylon. Now, it's possible that even after Hezekiah and everything that's going on, that uh, Judah is still kind of, you know, Manasseh is probably a vassal of Assyria. Um, Assyria is still a, a pretty big powerhouse at this point. Uh, the king is Ashurbanipal, and he's, uh, he's, an, he's an effective ruler. They're the biggest dogs on the stage right now. And so it looks like Manasseh did something to cross him or, or whatnot, and he's led captive into Babylon. And while he's there, uh, after being captured and led away and stuck in a prison, he repents, and he, he prays to the Lord, and uh, God forgives him and allows him to actually return uh, to be the king and then to rebuild 
uh, certain cities and to organize the army. And one of the things is, as I've been going through this, it seems to be that the the author's way of saying, hey, things are going well for this king are he builds things and he organizes the army. Like you read about that a lot as you go through Kings and Chronicles. He built this and he built that and he built this and he built that. And some of the times you're like, I have no idea what these places are. And I don't think it's necessarily important that we know, you know, what the shepherd's gate is or, or whatever. I think the point is trying to show us that things, th- this is a way of saying, hey, his reign's going well. Like what do kings do? Kings build things. Sure. And kings organize the army. And if you have a lot of things built and a well-organized army, that's a sign that you're having a successful reign. And it's great that, that this is an actual historical thing. That's one of the differentiators mm-hmm. between biblical religions, uh, you know, between what we have in the Bible and other religions have. This has actually happened. Like it's, yeah, that, that matters. That's a, that's a good point as well. Like it's, these aren't just, this isn't just a story. It is no. a story, but it's not just a story. Like, this is history. This I try happened. to remember, I try to remember that when I'm reading a, a genealogy. <laughs> I'm like, how cool would it be if my dad's name was in there? You know, how cool would <laughs> it be, be cool. if, like, that was somebody I knew? Like, even if it was a list of hundreds of names, it's like, yeah, but that's my uncle. Or, you know, like, that would be really awesome. So I try to put myself in the place of these people for whom, because they are actual people. It is an actual historical record. And I think that's, yeah. that helps us with, through some of these kinds of things when you read about well, what's the sheep gator i know i did that with Acts chapter two when it lists all the nations that are impacted on the day of pentecost i'm like you know where are these places and then i went and looked on the map i'm like oh these are actual places with people from there and so that process is helpful it'll be interesting one day to, to get to heaven and to hear the hundreds of stories in these genealogies you think about yeah you know just the the generations of of faithful followers of the lord yeah. who uh you know stuck to the stuff and ended up being in the descendant you know the line of christ and, yeah. and we all we have is their name and that's right. all we know but they lived an entire life and raised a family and well you might get a little bit of it like you know you you hear today the legends of silicon valley the the engineers who made microsoft windows right like these these names that just are lionized in our culture because they're wealthy and they did this thing that everybody knew about one day the Sheepgate engineer guy is gonna be like <laughs> i was the Sheepgate engineer you know and it's like it's it was as significant or more significant, yeah. you know, it was something that, that mattered a great deal. And, and that person did that. That's an interesting modern parallel. So as we think about, uh, Manasseh and his repentance, um, well, I mean, there's a number of different angles we could look at this. Why do some people turn to God in moments of desperation, uh, while others continue to refuse him? We'll just kind of start with that one. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> we all, for, for any of you behind the screen, we all like looked at each other for a second. And, and Who wants to take this one? Yeah, I. You know, it's it's interesting, like how hard it has to get for some people, and how other people are just the opposite. I mean, there's just different kinds of personalities or different kinds of histories. Uh, I know my dad got saved because. God made his life miserable and scared him to death. My mom got saved because she saw that God loved her and she was amazed by that. You know, so just very different kinds of backgrounds. And I, I think, um, you know, there's just, God knows what every person needs to bring them to himself. And he's doing that and he's drawing them to himself. And, you know, here's, here's Manasseh and it, this is what it took. You know, that's, it kind of reminds me of the end of Jude when it says, and of some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. 
Yeah, it's exactly. It's, yeah, you know, there's different. My dad different literally. Different my dad literally grew up in a Christian home and rejected the gospel until he's in an airplane and the landing gear won't go down, and and <laughs> oh, he's you serious. Yeah, and and he's just sitting there, and he's he's everybody's scared to death, and he's grabbing the seat, and he and he looks over at this guy who's sitting there calmly. He goes, "Hey, why aren't you scared, man?" He goes, "I'm a Christian. and I'm ready to see God." And my dad's like. Oh man, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and my dad's like, like bargaining with God on the airplane, like you know all this stuff. And then they mm. they land and the gear breaks and they're skidding across the runway and sparks are going everywhere. And he's like, oh. And then shortly after, uh, he got saved. Well, it, it reminds me of an ABF lesson that you did a while ago, Ben. And it's always stuck in my head. But there's three things that God uses to motivate us, and they also are three motivations potentially for someone to be saved. And one of those is fear. The fear of God, another is love, the love of God, and then the other one was reward. Um, God uses all three of those, those things to motivate us in our Christian walk, and in a sense, he can also use those three to motivate uh, someone toward salvation. So, you know, for someone who needs to be scared out of their wits to get saved, like Matt was just talking about, you know, that's the fear of God is what brings them to repentance. Others need love, the love of God, because they haven't received that love in their life, and when they realize that God loves them like that, it overwhelms them. So those are those three in balance have become very much a framework that I've thought through since you had that ABF lesson. But this yeah. plays right into that. Yeah, it does. I think you know, really the question is, how can anybody not come to God? Yeah, like it just it, and it ought to break our hearts. It ought to melt us. It ought to just undo us. That people that we know and love, uh, as Pastor mentioned on Sunday, you know, you're going to sit there and you're going to see people suffer that you love. I mean, that's just incomprehensible like oh lord break their hearts now lord if you got to go to manasseh level go to manasseh level yeah. get these people yeah i mean we're seeing we're seeing the problems of the human condition you know our sinful human condition when you ask this question why do some people turn to god in moments of desperation well there, there's just a, a natural uh, sinful bent of ours that when things are going well we're confident we and we trust in ourselves and we believe that our stability is because we provided it and then the moments of desperation we're like oh no i need help i need help i need help and that's when so many of us turn to god that's one reason why sometimes i think the lord keeps our lives more difficult because he wants us to stay reliant on him um, the daily stressors of life should point us to god not to relying on ourselves and uh, so that that's a major part of the human condition why do others continue to refuse him in the midst of that and that's an even harder part of the human condition for us to think about but uh, there are some hearts that are hardened and uh, yeah. and and just we want our own way so badly and the the sin of Satan when he wanted to exalt himself above God and his pride is is are things that we hold on to and our pride is a is a strong force to fight against and uh, so yeah I, I think our pride ends up being a major reason why some continue to refuse. Well, this is kind of an Old Testament example of the prodigal son, really. When mm. you think about mm. it, you know mm. he he just lives his life the way he wants, and then one day he wakes up in the pig pen, which is a, a prison in Babylon, himself. and yeah. he comes to himself and he says, "Oh man, I." You know, I I ignored the God of our fathers, and I spat in his face and look at where I am. And yet, you know, just the the humility to come back to God and to yeah. say, "I'm, please forgive me for all of that, and I'm turning from that, and I'm coming to you." And the and the mercy and the kindness of God to say, "Okay, I'll restore you." Yeah. I, I mean, God didn't have to do that. The um, faith slash repentance response is always the right call. Yeah, uh, and that's we all need that today. Yeah. So a pretty pretty incredible story uh, when you look at it. Manasseh comes back. He um, he tries to undo what he has done. 
he uh, tries to come and to um, remove the idolatry and to reestablish the worship of God. And he does, at least kind of on a surface level. Uh, unfortunately, Manasseh had a 55-year reign, and we don't know at what point in his reign he was captured and, and taken mm. Um, and so it could have been, you know, probably probably would be near the end of his reign. Kings doesn't mention it at all, which would kind of uh, lean me to say that this was probably something that happened a little bit later, uh, probably wasn't able to have as much of an impact um, because we, his son comes along and his son is wicked. And I, I think there's been a corrupting. And, you know, if this happened in year 50, I mean, you just think about it. You have men who are 50 years old um, who were born when the king took, and for your entire adult life, your entire life, right? you have people who probably lived and died and had a, a relatively full life all under Manasseh's reign. 55 years is the longest reign of any king. You know, you think of the modern example of, mm. of you know, Queen Elizabeth, and it's just hard to imagine England right now without Queen Elizabeth because right. it's just, it's been that way for my whole lifetime and yeah, probably the whole lifetime sure. and my parents. And I mean, it's just, she has reigned for a very long time. And so his his corruption really sinks down deep into Judah, and God's going to say at later points, you know, because of the sin of Manasseh, I'm bringing judgment. And you're like, well, will he turn from that? Yes, he did, but but it, it so corrupted the nation. And um, so we there's a lot to learn here. Uh, Ammon comes along, and I'll just touch briefly on that for time's sake. But Ammon returns to his father's way, and. Um, his father's ways, and God brings swift judgment on Ammon. Now, this is something that really stuck out to me. Manasseh is given 55 years to get his act together. He has a 55-year reign. Ammon reigns for two years and is assassinated. Mm. And I think if you put those two lessons together, when we when we get to the end of this lesson, what we realize is you're never too far gone, but you're never guaranteed tomorrow either. It's true. You know, and so both of those are important. You know, God is good. He's merciful, but but he may not give you another year or two years or three years to, yeah. to get your act together. So, so turn now, uh, turn to him now. Um, Behold, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Yeah. It, just, that, that verse came right to mind. Accept it that. today. Yeah. Amen. So I don't know if anyone else has any other thoughts, just kind of as we're wrapping things up here. I mean, just the, the concept of God's mercy is is something that we we have to constantly pray for and, and, and beg God to give us. The way you just summed that up at the end was was pretty much perfect. But we never want to presume a God, upon God's mercy. But at the same time, it's just it's wonderful that we have a God that we can ask for mercy and uh, and trust that He'll give it not only for ourselves but even for our families, for our nation. Like just praying that God will show mercy. I think it's important that you have Ahab, the most wicked king in the north who repents, or at least shows remorse. He humbles himself, we'll say. And God shows him mercy and says, tells the prophet, okay, I'm not going to yeah. bring this judgment during his day, but a son's day, because he's, do you see how he's humbled himself before me? And you have Manasseh, the most wicked king of the south. You have the most wicked king of the north and the most wicked king of the south who humble themselves before God, and God shows both of them mercy. And I don't think that's an accident. I think yeah. the writers of Scripture wanted us to see God as the kind of God who will show mercy every time we come in true brokenness and humility. And um, that's that's worth pondering. That's worth uh, spending some time thinking about and and, and praising God for and, and worship and prayer. It reminds me of the lyrics of a song where it says, I think at the end of it says, then we will stand overwhelmed by the mercy of God. Yeah. Well, next week we are going to be covering King Josiah 
and we'll be talking about him. He is uh, really the the godliest king of, of these. Uh, obviously, David's kind of set up as the standard, but once you get past David, uh, Josiah really honestly even gives David a run for his money. Uh, there is a zeal for holiness, and I think that's really going to be the theme that we're, we'll be looking at. How far are you willing to go to do what's right? And, um, you know, there are other kings who come before him who are kind of like, well, we'll we'll get rid of this, or we'll maybe, you know, we'll we'll do that. And equivocate. They equivocate a little bit, and they, they allow certain things. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. Sure. We don't see that with Josiah. We see somebody who is sold out. Right totally zealous. And I think that's a worthy example. I think it's worth um, our thinking through and asking ourselves, do I have a zeal like Josiah or do I have kind of a, a half-hearted, well, I'll do certain things nevertheless. And I think that'll be a, a really helpful lesson. And so thank you for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again, uh, hopefully on Sunday. And if not on Sunday, um, on our next episode together. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.